This is a Stimulus Network podcast. Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I'm Leah and I keep confusing left and right. Hello, I'm Will and I keep confusing east and west, but not left and right. So I guess it's different when it's like laid out in front of me. I just never know which hand is which. We're doing fine so far. Hello, yes, we are here with things that we are wrong about. In fact, we've got some stories that you might be wrong about too, because that's how psychology works, I guess. And science. You know, we're constantly trying to work out what we're wrong about. And there's lots of ways in which you can be wrong. You can be quietly wrong to yourself, which is how I try and limit a lot of my wrongness. Or you can be very loud in person about how wrong you are, which is how a lot of the world kind of works right now. This is getting very bleak to start with. We should keep moving quickly on to the science. Starting with some research from the Society for Personality and Social Psychology, with their new report about how stories can undermine facts in trying to convince people just how right or wrong you or they are. This effect doesn't cover all facts at all times. It only seems to help if the facts you are using are weak facts, which they don't like define in a way that makes sense in the press release. Yeah, what they've got here is really talking about the strength of storytelling to convince people. One of the opening paragraphs, in fact, is if someone is trying to persuade or influence others, should they use a story or stick to the facts? According to research from social psychologists at Northwestern University, stories can increase the persuasiveness of weak facts, but actually decrease the persuasiveness of strong facts. When they're discussing the methodology, they use a couple of examples. They are giving participants a set of facts about a fictitious brand of cell phone. They compare the strong fact, the phone can withstand a fall of up to 30 feet, to the weak fact, the phone can withstand a fall of up to 3 feet. So are they saying strong and weak are about, like, the size of the claim? Or... The size of the lie, maybe? Because like it wouldn't take very much convincing for someone to say, yeah, 3 feet, that makes sense. But they don't explain. They just use those two examples, which don't tell you a lot about is a strong fact one that's making a bigger claim is a strong fact one that's got more information to back it up which does make this as a press release not immediately useful for giving you information about how you should approach persuading people which is a shame because maybe you're thinking already of an anecdote about if you want to convince people with a lie you should pepper in a couple of facts or make it an embarrassing story about yourself if you want to get off work ill for example don't just say you're hungover Say you had an incredibly bad stomach and, like, tell people exactly how many times you had to go to the bathroom or how long you were on there, because an embarrassing fact is a very convincing way of assuring people this is really true, I wouldn't make this sort of thing up. At least that's immediately what my mind goes to. Maybe I'm just fixated on getting time off work. I always assume those things are about, if you start talking about bowels, people are less likely to ask, at least in the culture that we're in, because there's definitely some cultures that just... Let's just talk about your bowel movements the same way we talk about the weather, and that's perfectly normal and polite to them, even as we find it extremely uncomfortable. Mm. I hadn't prepared a segue to get from bowel movements to a quote, but there is a quote early on in this press release that stories persuade, at least in part, by disrupting the ability to evaluate facts rather than just biasing a person to think positively. And that's from Rebecca Krauss, who is one of the co-authors of this paper. And that's really the strongest bit of information that we get from this press release is that the effect that storytelling has on persuasion is not absolute. 
Krauss is quoted again at the bottom of this article saying that it doesn't mean that a story is indicative of weak facts, rather that when you feel especially compelled by a great story, you might want to give more thought and consideration to the facts to determine how good they are, and be mindful of not being swayed by someone making up a very good story to cover some otherwise weak facts. And that's just a lesson to carry forwards into 2019, I suppose. What's left of it? The year or facts? The year. I don't think facts are going to cease to exist, much as some people are constantly trying to push that, you know, trying to live in a post-facts situation when, you know, there's still a real world out there where things actually happen or, in fact, do not happen. That does sometimes seem to slip people's mind, and they need some help remembering it. Which, perhaps they should go to the University of California, San Francisco, for that help. What they have been learning at the University of California, San Francisco, is that you can manipulate rats' brainwaves while they're sleeping to affect the way they learn things? And they weren't even, apparently, trying to find that out when they started this experiment. What a happy accident to accidentally stumble into. Oh wow, we managed to augment or erase this rat's memory of the thing that we trained it to do. The thing they were actually trying to do when they discovered this is teach cyborg rats that have had sensors embedded in their brains to turn on and off a water tube in hopes that this research could lead to great strides forward in mind-controlled robotic prosthesis for paralysed human beings. Which is a very noble thing to aspire to. It's pretty damn sci-fi. While this research turned up along the way has been published in the journal Cell, which is one of the biggest scientific journals there is, pretty much the top name you can get, and it's a research team led by Karanesh Ganguly, an associate professor of neurology and a member of the UCSF Weill Institute for Neurosciences. They've used this technique called optogenetics, which I think we've talked about before. I'm not certain we have talked about it before, because reading through this press release before we started recording, I was like, wait, what has this got to do with genetics? And then had to read further to find out that the cyborg rats are also genetically modified to include basically a light-operated switch in their brain, which could be set off by flashing a particular pattern of lasers across their eyes while they sleep. Again, pretty sci-fi. Very sci-fi, and I could swear we've talked about shining lights in people's brains before. Maybe I just had a weird dream. Anyway, what we do have is a quote from Ganguly saying, We were astonished that we could make learning better or worse by dampening distinct types of brainwaves during sleep. The research here focuses on two distinctive types of brainwaves seen during sleep, or at least two types of slow brainwaves, slow oscillations or delta waves, which either weaken or strengthen, when the light is being fired, those lasers are being shone into the rat's eyes, which are involved in the brain cells required to learn or forget a new skill. Ganguly continues that, in particular, delta waves are a big part of sleep, but they've been less studied, and no one had described a particular role to them. We believe that these two types of slow waves compete during sleep to determine whether new information is consolidated or is forgotten. Which I guess comes back to the loose understanding that most people have of what sleep is for, and what sleep does as a biological mechanism. Yeah, it's one of those things which, the more research you start trying to do into it as a layperson, the more you find out we don't know, and since it's something we spend, you know, a solid third of our lives doing, that's pretty wild. Yeah, I could swear I picked up at some point that it was the time that your brain uses to sort information into make a memory of this, or discard it, and that's kind of dreaming as a byproduct of that, of how 
so many things that you see and do and experience during the day reoccur in your dreams as your brain is sifting that information out. That's definitely one of the theories, but the last time I was looking into things with a view to writing something about sleep and dreaming particularly, the more I found that it was like, this is what we reckon, but it doesn't really have much evidence to back it up because there's not a lot of evidence either way because sleep is just weird. But we can change it now. We can get full-on eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and maybe laser your brain into forgetting things or remembering things and if that helps people adapt quickly to prosthesis or have some kind of mind control devices for people who are bedridden, then heck yeah. Of course, they do mention potential future applications in forgetting traumatic experiences, which introduces some interesting philosophical and ethical questions of, like, do you fundamentally change someone's personality if you make them forget a formative traumatic experience? Or do you just have to make sure you get in quickly enough after the experience to make sure that it's not actually become consolidated as a part of their identity? There's places you can go with this. And it gets to changing people's brainwaves with lasers. It is very Black Mirror-esque. So I think we should maybe leave this one to the professionals and not go around assailing the central aisle at Pets at Home with a little laser pointer just yet. Now we know cats follow the laser pointer, and we know ducks follow the laser pointer, and we know drunk students follow the laser pointer. Do you have to have some sort of predatory interest to do that, or do we think we get a rabbit too? I don't know if I've ever seen a rabbit do anything with intent or purpose apart from lettuce, so that would be a whole new experience for me regardless. I've seen them throw things around with wild abandon. It's hard to understand the motivations of a rabbit. Maybe we can change those with the lasers too and bend them to our will. That is a whole other sci-fi film we'd have to explore some other time. They're too fragile to make effective soldiers. One thing, a rat whose mind has been controlled with lasers... God, that's weird is unlikely to do, because in my experience rats are deeply sensible people, except when they want to chew electrical wires, is overstate their level of knowledge and therefore accidentally end up voting in a far-right populist candidate? It's a tenuous link, but I ask you to buy into it. In the story of that, I guess you could try and frame as people having forgotten important things and buying into stories more than they buy into facts, this other story from the Society for Personality and Social Psychology sheds light on just how people will report their level of information when it comes to an important vote, and how much that correlates with actually being right. Psychologists in the Netherlands found that overclaiming one's knowledge was a predictor for anti-establishment voting, particularly the radical right. This, in contrast to perhaps saying, oh yeah, I know a lot about that, when you actually know a lot about that. The co-authors of this study, Jan-Willem van Bruggen and André Kraul, both from VU Amsterdam, note that this occurs for both the political left and right, but it does appear stronger for the radical right, and they gathered data from a panel of voters who were sent a survey six weeks before a referendum about a EU treaty, and asked to rate themselves on the understanding of the treaty as well as answer factual questions about the referendum with a survey of their political views. And this went out to over 13,000 people, so a pretty solid data set there. And then they followed up with this two days after the vote, a second round of questions asking how people voted, with the results kept anonymous of course, and found that for each point of self-perceived knowledge, the chances of an anti-establishment vote go up by almost twice as much. While an increase in actual knowledge decreases the likelihood of an anti-establishment vote slightly. 
An important quote at the end here. Future research may reveal whether discrepancy between self-perceived understanding and actual knowledge is due to being uninformed or due to being misinformed, which comes back to a lot of the stuff we were talking about, stories and facts earlier. People can be swayed, and thinking of certain referendums that have happened in the UK over the last couple of years, disinformation and misinformation have been rife. And it certainly rings true with a lot of the things people have said about the radicalisation of young white men on the internet by white nationalists, is that actually a lot of them are intelligent people, they're very capable, they are being lied to. Same with flat earthers. A tremendous capability for knowledge and information seeking, but it's misdirected, it gets sent somewhere off course by people who will manipulate that. And um, is also a very bleak topic. There's a lot of those around. We should keep moving with more science. The more science we get in, the better it looks, right? 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 Just trust in science. Science is completely neutral and will never lead you wrong. That also is a lie. That is a lie too. (laughs) Speaking of, Nanyang Technological University in Singapore are behind a study that suggests children told lies by their parents subsequently lie more as adults and face adjustment difficulties as they come into adulthood. Who'd have thought those who are lied to might end up doing more lying? We have more specifics than that, so I'll keep going now. The team asked 379 Singaporean young adults whether their parents lied to them when they were children, how much they lied to their parents now, and just how well-adjusted they felt to adulthood challenges like social challenges, if they were disruptive, if they experienced guilt or shame, or if they were possibly selfish or manipulative. Now, this is a fairly small sample size, and the authors point out that the study is correlational in design, so they are not able to draw any causal inference that as a result of being lied to more by their parents, people are likely to lie more as adults themselves. But it definitely makes sense intuitively that that would work out that way, especially when the lies they're talking about are things like, if you don't start behaving yourself, I'll call the police. Indeed, lead author, assistant professor Seto Pepe from NTU's Singapore School of Social Sciences, seems to reckon that lying to kids is more of a power play. Parenting by lying can seem to save time, especially when the real reasons behind why parents want children to do something is complicated to explain. When parents tell children that honesty is the best policy, but display dishonesty by lying, such behaviour can send conflicting messages to their children. Parents' dishonesty may eventually erode trust, promote dishonesty in children, and it's possible that a lie is to assert parents' power. The example they give here is, if you don't behave, I'll throw you in the water to feed the fish. And that, in turn, may be adjusted to children's maladjustment as adults. Now, I'm not a parent myself, but yeah, threatening your kid with a pair of cement shoes, that is going to lead to some kind of repercussions down the line. And there are some mentions in the press release of further investigations to be done with this, whether the nature of the lies or the goals of the parent in lying have an effect. If it's just kind of buying for time, as mentioned earlier, or indeed that kind of manipulation thing. I think there are some lies to children that are just, it's simpler for right now. We can't get into explaining how magnets really work, so just saying that they stick together because this iron likes that iron is just, it works. It's for right now, it's fine. And sometimes you do just have to say, no, you can't have the £5 Paw Patrol magazine. I don't have any money. When it's because, you know, the kid isn't going to read it. They're just going to look at it, sit on it, maybe chew it. But you need them to stop screaming right now. 
in this supermarket. And you can't reason with a three-year-old. If there are any parents out there listening to this, or carers of children, let us know what are some of the more interesting lies that you have told the children in your life. Send them to us at eurekanerdcast at gmail.com. If you can top the one where my mum had my baby brother convinced that chocolate fingers were dog biscuits, but not convinced enough to stop him eating them, I don't know, I might send you something. Here's something else that you might be wrong about, and it's something that I've been personally guilty of. When it comes to trying to help people who are going through a moment of anxiety or a panic attack, trying to get them to just calm down and, like, relax, it's hard. Sometimes, as much as you may want them to relax, they are not going to be able to because their body and brain isn't letting them. And apparently it can be an adaptive technique, according to the research from Penn State, that some people with anxiety may strategically choose to worry over relaxing to kind of keep tension at an even steady high rather than experiencing the highs and lows of relaxing and then getting very upset and then relaxing again. Now that's not to say that that actually is an approach that will, like, help. Oh god, no, it's not healthy, but some people might be doing it. The research suggests that people who are more sensitive to shifts in negative emotion are more likely to feel anxious while doing a relaxation exercise. The phenomenon is known as relaxation-induced anxiety. It features people becoming more anxious during relaxation exercises. Michelle Newman, a professor of psychology, pointed out that while researchers have known about relaxation-induced anxiety since the 80s, the specific cause of the phenomenon has remained unknown. But she developed the contrast avoidance theory in 2011, thinking that the two concepts might be connected, and this focuses on that idea of remaining anxious so that when a bad thing does happen, it's not such a vast shift as if you had previously been relaxed, even though other research shows that if you were relaxed to start with, you're able to deal with the anxiety-inducing situation easier, but, you know, when we're talking about anxiety disorders, we're talking about a thing where your brain is doing a... not, not the right. It's just not doing the right. As punishing as relaxation-induced anxiety might sound as a phrase, the methodology behind this whole investigation sounds equally mean, and it involved 96 college students, 32 with generalised anxiety disorder, 34 with major depressive disorder, and 30 controllers with neither, who were led through a relaxation exercise before being made to watch videos that elicit fear or sadness. Mean. Like, I know that's what they're trying to find out, is how well do you cope with emotional swing from relaxed to agitated. But just be like, okay, we enter Cobra Pose, leaning up through the shoulders, and then we put on Old Yeller. And of course, if they want to really test if these results are actually reliable, they're going to have to replicate the study with bigger sample sizes, and they're going to have to do it to even more people. They're going to subject even more people to, okay, we're just going to... Do some happy little trees. Happy little trees in the corner. Yeah, a little light coming off of them. Say, you'll ever seen Day of the Dead. We're suggesting that Bob Ross in and of himself is a relaxation technique, huh? He is absolutely a relaxation technique. <laughs> I think I'm thinking more of, like, you know, breathing exercises and the Alexander technique and that kind of thing, you know? YouTube compilations of industrial machinery, like making cans and pencils and stuff, do they count? No, not quite, honey. <sighs> I might just watch some of those anyway. So people with generalised anxiety disorder, based on this small, very mean study, were found to be more likely to be sensitive to that sharp spike in emotion going from relaxation to fear or stress. 
and this sensitivity was linked to feeling anxious during sessions intended to induce relaxation. And they've just kind of nailed down that these people are anxious. Generally. That's the anxiety experience. People are like, oh, I always feel so much more relaxed when I've had my overnight oats and I can just be really mindful when I'm brushing my teeth. And then you're like, oh, I'm going to focus on the experience of eating my overnight oats and brushing my teeth. And what if someone runs me over while I'm on my way to work? Because when you let your mind go blank, the demons get it. Now that's just a scientific fact. That is a story and a fact, so you can know it's true. One of the study co-authors, Hanju Kim, does say that it would be important in further study to examine the relaxation-induced anxiety in other disorders, such as panic disorder and persistent mild depression, from which we can springboard into another depression-related story. Hooray! Thanks, University of Arizona, for your research on smartphone dependency and depression. And indeed trying to ascertain if there is a causal relationship between them, and if so, which way it goes. Now, this isn't just one of those y'all kids on your Snapchats and your generalised anxiety disorders, because people have been depressed for a lot longer than there have been cell phones, but there's more people with more cell phones, and trying to pick apart whether the general abundance of people being really not very well is linked to that in a causal relationship has been undertaken in a group of 346 young adults aged between 18 and 20 who were given a survey about how much they depend on their smartphone and how much they experience depressive symptoms and loneliness. And researcher Matthew Lapierre is concerned there's too much of a focus on the general use of smartphones. Smartphones can be useful. They help us connect with others. We've really been trying to focus on this idea of dependency and the problematic use of smartphones being the driver for these psychological outcomes. Master student Peng Fei Zhao, one of the co-authors with Lapierre, says... If depression and loneliness lead to smartphone dependency, we could maybe try to reduce dependency by adjusting people's mental health. But if smartphone dependency precedes those symptoms, which is what they found in this study, maybe we can reduce smartphone dependency to maintain or improve well-being. It's nice that for once someone's going, might not be the smartphone itself that's the problem, although I'm still... There aren't many numbers included in this press release about how strong a predictor smartphone dependency was for low mood. It's not a huge sample size. I'm still not totally convinced that the smartphone dependency leads to depression as opposed to them having common precursors. And that's something which they are very careful to try and pick apart. Zhao continues later, it might be easier for late adolescents, these young adults, to become dependent on smartphones and smartphones might have a bigger negative influence on them because they are already very vulnerable to depression or loneliness, and that when people feel stressed they should use other healthy approaches to cope, like talking to a friend, doing some exercises, maybe some guided relaxation activity, and oh no, the anxiety's setting in again. <laughs> I'm just having to do a quick mental check on my geography here that Penn State and University of Arizona are quite far apart, far apart enough that someone just isn't having the worst weekend doing both of these studies being oscillated from anxiety about not being able to get to their smartphone to then, hey, sit down, colour in these circles, and watch this Rob Zombie flick. You have such an interesting concept of what counts as a relaxation technique. You know, the stuff they put in, like, magazines about mindfulness is usually bollocks, right? I did actually take out a whole thing about mindfulness. We were going to maybe talk about it, but then it was an entire issue of a journal saying, 
is all the stuff that these people are doing about mindfulness. It is kind of self-congratulatory and a bit whitewashy about Buddhism. And we've also had some talks and shows in Bristol about muck mindfulness and the fact that this one guy who used to be a monk is now making like $500 million a year from telling people just to chill out. It's a bit more of a big subject than I really wanted to get into within this whole other episode. Maybe we can circle back to it. This might be a good one to do alongside a psychological professional. Yeah, if you're a psychologist who would like to tell us about mindfulness and whether or not it is a thing that we should try, then Eureka Nerdcast on Twitter, EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com for emails. And while we're talking about things that have been peddled very widely but don't necessarily have any actual backup, Hey, do you know how much evidence there is that doing a power pose before you go on stage or whatever is really useful? I could tell you how much I'd think there was before sending you this list of stories that we're talking about right now. Because I've seen four pictures that I can immediately think of of politicians embarrassing themselves on stage with a really wide stance. Bro, a big, wide shape, big power pose. Oh, this will get the testosterone flowing. I think there's like TED Talks and stuff about it, how you can embody your success with your firm set shoulders and high jaw. It's got to be from something, right? Well, it is from something. A 2010 study reported that people who adopted an expansive physical pose decreased cortisol levels, increased testosterone levels, and felt more powerful and willing to take risks. But it's got a little bit of a replication problem, and the original study might not have been, you know, sufficiently controlled. Ah. So they did the job bad. That was their mistake from this episode all about mistakes. And of course everyone else's mistake was taking that at face value and just rolling with it because, oh, people love what seems like a simple, straightforward solution. If you can go, hey, just stand with your legs nice and wide apart, put your hands on your hips, yeah, ooh, you're like Wonder Woman or whatever. Now you feel powerful, go, be powerful. And they didn't test the power pose against a neutral pose, they only tested it against a contractive slouchy pose, which showed increased cortisol levels versus a power pose, while a power pose showed the same cortisol levels as a neutral pose, which they didn't include. They didn't have a proper control. We can thank Marcus Creday, Associate Professor of Psychology at Iowa State, for these revelations, who has the damning quote here of there has literally never been a study that compared a power pose to a normal pose and found any positive effect for a power pose. The only conclusion researchers should draw from the existing literature on postural feedback is that contractive poses, such as slouching, should be avoided, which is hardly novel. Brutal bluntness there. But if you write, you write. I appreciate the honesty. And it does help to have, you know, another little bit of reinforcement to the idea that you shouldn't slouch. You'll destroy your spine and also your confidence. For more on that, check out episode 45, where we talk about the Alexander Technique. But given that Creday also continues in this press release, I find this pretty stunning because of the multi-million dollar industry that has been built up around power posing. It's not dissimilar to a drug being sold to the public without a single study having ever been able to show that the drug works better than the placebo or doing nothing, which does then come back to the mindfulness empire which I mentioned earlier. Maybe we should chat to Creday and get his uh, take on the whole thing. But for now, that is the last of the things that we think that we have been wrong about and now feel better for being a bit righter about. Because, you know, that's a scientific process. Just being a bit more right than yesterday, and hopefully just, you know, picking up some interesting things along the way. 
I think it's about being less wrong than you were yesterday. Keep doing that for long enough, and they give you a certificate. Sometimes a big shiny medal as well. That is the real big not wrongs. If you would like to tell us all about some mistakes that you have learnt from, or things that you could swear you were right about, send them to us again at Eureka Nerdcast on Twitter, EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com, or find us on Facebook forward slash Eureka Nerd. And if you love us and you want to show us some support, then just reward us for spending our Sunday afternoon reading through lots of press releases, some of which aren't very good, and then reporting that to you. You can make a donation to us via Ko-fi. For more science news, check out the rest of the Stimulus Network podcasts, such as For What It's Earth, The Cosmic Shed, Inside the Petri Dish, and Spook Data, where lots of people will help you be less wrong than you were yesterday. Or even tell you some interesting things about something you'd never even considered enough to be wrong about. But until next time, we'll leave you with the really quite hard to be wrong about stories, firstly from Northwestern University, that allegedly... Science says that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Actually, it says what doesn't kill you makes you stronger in a very specific set of circumstances which don't involve actually dying, but narrowly missing out on getting funding for some work. And also, the University of Waterloo, who have shocked us all with the finding that driving too fast is a very, very good predictor of crashing your car. But until next time, that's bye-bye from me. And goodbye from me. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network. Da na da na da na 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 na.